Hi, I'm Corey Baldwin. And I'm Dan Searle, and it's time for another episode of Off the Beaten Path. This, as you know, if you've been listening, is a podcast for basketball coaches who are living in obscurity, working in obscurity, and even some who have made it out of obscurity. Yes. It's a place for storytelling. Some of those stories are even true. Uh, for learning, connecting, reconnecting, food for thought, and my favorite, food for the belly. We'll talk about that food for the belly, but this is definitely about reconnecting. Today, we welcome John Thompson, longtime coach. Some might even say legendary coach at NC Wesleyan. So, Coach Thompson, welcome, man. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing great. And you've already got my stomach going with the uh, food for the belly talk. Um, <laughs> If you, if I can indulge me, I'll, I'll give you a great Final Four story uh, from Dallas, uh, which was not my favorite place for the Final Four, but uh, it's a great place for barbecue. And uh, a buddy of mine and I uh, were in search of the best barbecue in Dallas, and they sent us to a place at the farmer's market, which in Dallas is indoors. But uh, this place is um, it, the, the actual kitchen and restaurant is about the size of my office. <laughs> but when we arrived, there was a line of about, uh, I'm going to say, 100 people. And wow. we, were really, we were really debating, like, okay, this may be the greatest barbecue in Texas, but do we want to wait? And um, so we decided we would. We were standing in line, and all of a sudden, <clears throat> there's a party of about 30 people, three different tables, all get up at the same time, and they're leaving. And they've got tons of food that's untouched. They had ordered all this food in trays, and they're kind of debating what to do with it. And I asked my buddy, I said, hey, look, you know, we're in line with 100 people, and uh, I'm going to I'm gonna ask if they'll sell us some of their leftovers, and we'll just skip the line, we'll eat, and... You're going to ask the people who are leaving, right? Who are not, leaving. Not the employees. We can buy some leaving. of their leftovers. Okay, okay. It, I'm telling you, it's untouched, like entire trays right. of food. And so I asked, and they said you know what, you can have it. So we sit down with way more food than we can eat. And it was the first time that I'd ever had burnt ends. Yeah, okay. Best thing I'd ever had. Mm, that's my wife's favorite. Yeah, oh, it was unbelievable. Mm. And uh, potato salad, slaw, all the sides, but there were ribs, or, and it, but there was so much food that then as other people came and got in the back of the line, we just invited them to sit down and eat as well. <laughs> to please have, don't worry about the line. We've got more food than we can eat. And we fed like two families of four and a group of three girls that were like college age. And it, it was amazing food. So food for the belly. There you go. I That's love a way to kick it off. My gosh. <laughs> That's the best start to our show yet. We usually save food for the end but right there at the beginning with a home run i love it 
And that sounds like a little building community too. You got to sit there and talk to random people that were coming through and, and break bread together and eat barbecue, right, John? It was great. It was a great experience. Well, they, they always say you can tell a true barbecue place by two things, how long the line is to get in and is it only open on three or four days in the week? <laughs> That's so those, are the, those are the things you look for. <laughs> no doubt. And, and I should shout out my man, Tim Pope, who's a high school coach, longtime high school coach here in the state and uh, now retired. But uh, he was with me on that venture. OK, good. I was going to ask who that was. So Tim Pope. Good deal. You guys had the best barbecue and it was free and it was free. And it was free. <laughs> I made it even better. <laughs> Amazing. You know, and, and we just felt like, hey, you know, pass it forward. Right. I love it. Well, before we get on your journey, how many you, you started off with a Final Four food story? How many Final Fours have you attended? I don't know what the number is, mm -hmm. but uh, my first Final Four was nineteen eighty-eight in Kansas City, the old Kemper Arena. Mm, and, uh I've been to every one since, except. Uh, I did not go to Detroit, and obviously uh, the pandemic interrupted uh, things as well. But but other than that, I've been to every Final Four since '88, whatever that. Which one is your favorite one? Wow, I tell you, the first one was really good, and not just because it was my first, but uh, Kansas City did an unbelievable job. Um, on the bus coming in from the hotel, they had a tour guide uh, kind of talking you through Kansas City and things you ought to check out while you were in town. And they had refreshments on the bus. Um, so they, they did some kind of special things that I thought uh, some other folks maybe have missed out on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love Indianapolis. You know, Indiana's a great basketball state. Indianapolis does a great job. I love San Antonio. Uh, they do a great job as well. New Orleans is also uh, ranks up there. So, uh, but, you know, they're great every year because I get to see guys like Dan and, and so many other of my coaching friends that I don't see on a regular basis. Uh, I get to see them there. Well, that's where this all started. That's where the John Thompson connection began. I got to finagle my way to a final four taking a bus and a train and I don't have anywhere to stay and the Riverwood high school coach is rooming with John Thompson and he's like yeah we're gonna be there uh can I stay on your floor maybe and John says sure so 97 98 I think there were a couple years where I curled up in the corner there and uh I'm grateful for that hospitality, right? You've been going to every Final Four and you probably uh, brought young coaches in as they kind of start working their way into the business and giving them literally a place to stay. So well, much appreciated, man. We've all been there. We've all been that young coach at some point who begged, borrowed, and maybe stole uh, a place <laughs> on somebody's floor or uh, you know, barbecue some, from the from the people who left. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, you know, again, somebody somebody did that for me once upon a time. So I was happy to do it for you. Much appreciated, for real. And now we get to hear your whole story, which is even more exciting. So so let let's get started there. What made you get into basketball? It was fun. 
but before I realized how much fun it was, uh, to be honest, it was my mom who got me into the game. Uh, my first sports introduction was baseball. My first sports love was football. And I was skinny as a rail and my mother was terrified that I would get killed playing football. And she's a native Kentuckian and a University of Kentucky graduate and was there when Rupp was winning national championships and she had been a high school cheerleader. And she said, why don't you try basketball? You know, basketball is a great game. And, you know, so I was, interested enough to give it a try and uh, fell in love with it. And, uh, you know, it just became, it, it became a real passion for me. And uh, yesterday I had a guy, Morris Thompson, uh, no relation, but a uh, high school opponent and a summer league teammate and an old five-star basketball camp teammate of mine came by uh, my house he was visiting from Atlanta and uh, you know basketball introduced me to so many great people and the 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 beauty of the game my love for the game and what it felt like to play the game and then all the people that I've met through it um, you know that's really where it started awesome awesome so you ended up uh, obviously you were a good high school player being able to play uh you know, at uh, UNCG. So tell us a little bit about your high school days. Yeah, high, high school days were great. Again, going back to, uh, I, I will go back to uh, my freshman year, which back in those days, that was actually part of junior high school, uh, seven, eight, nine, and then high school would be 10, 11, 12. And when I was in junior high, the coach at Durham High School was Dave Odom later the coach of Wake Forest and the University mm -hmm. of South Carolina. Um, and he ran a summer league. And that summer league was only for rising juniors and seniors, the guys who had been sophomores and juniors that year in the high schools. And um, I lobbied the high school coach at Jordan where I was going to be the next year as a sophomore I lobbied him to try to get in that league. And um, he was able to work that out. Dave Odom allowed me to join the league. I was one of only two rising sophomores in the league. The other one being a guy named James Marshall, who uh, played at Durham High and went on to play at UNC Asheville. Um, and that summer league, although I was in over my head, I was playing, uh, I mentioned just a minute ago, Morris Thompson, his brother, Bubba Thompson, who played at North Carolina A&T. I was on the team with Bubba Thompson. I was on the team with Anthony Miles, who uh, later went on to play at uh, Arkansas State, was an outstanding player there. Uh, at that time, Durham was loaded with players, and I was definitely in over my head, uh, but it introduced me to Coach Odom who later got me into five-star, which okay. was key in, in my development uh, in the game, and the competition and being able to spend time with all these outstanding players. Durham High School had 
Morris Thompson, who went to Mercer University, Bubba Thompson, who played at A&T, Charles Daxton, who played at East Tennessee State, uh, Lionel Rogers, who I think originally signed at Ohio U, but went to High Point. Um, it, they were loaded. Uh, Anthony Miles, I mentioned at Arkansas State, mm -hmm. they also had um, Leon McRae, who went to UNC Wilmington. Northern Durham had Tommy Bathia, who went to Villanova. Durham was loaded with players. Hot then, yeah. And give, and give us the uh, give us the year range here. Yeah, this would have been in the uh, summer of '76. And, and you uh, you remember every single one of these names. I love it. I love it. Well, I remember the points that got scored and who who put the ball in the hoop. Yeah, what's crazy is, um, you know, that I'm still in touch with so many of these guys. Um, Tommy Bathia, who went to Villanova, he he finished at Richmond, was drafted by Atlanta, um, and he's in Mobile, Alabama, and still a friend of mine. Um, you know, Morris and Bubba, I'm still in touch with. Um, Charles Baxton and Lionel Rogers, I saw just a year ago. Um, Anthony Miles was a high school coach here in the state for a long time. Uh, Anthony Miles was the first guy that I ever saw dunk and put his elbow in the rim, like Vince Carter. Anthony yeah. Miles was the first guy I ever saw do that. This guy's six six, tremendous athlete, score rebounder, and uh, he went to Arkansas State. He was a librarian, and he was a librarian at the North Carolina School of Science and Math and was their basketball coach for years. And uh, so we stayed in touch and, and you know, he actually, he came to one of our games this year. Uh, so, so. so how hard is it, right? And before we started taping, we joked about the time before cell phones. Um, you've, you've lived that into cell phone line, uh, cell phone times. How hard is it to stay in touch? You say you still talk to them and Morris came and visited. How do you keep those connections there? What do you do? Well, you know, we call, we, we make an effort to, to stay in touch. Um, you know, last year, one of Morris's teammates, David Hester, another good friend of mine who uh, played at Lenore Rhine, uh, those guys put together a basketball reunion. And so I saw Charles Baxter and Lionel Rogers for the first time in years. Um, Anthony was there. I had seen him several times. Uh, and his teammate, Leon McRae, had seen him a few times over the years, but he was there. Shelton Watlington was an outstanding player from Chapel Hill High, who was uh, Morris, myself and Shelton Watlington were all teammates together at Five Star back okay. then. And Shelton went on to play at Pan American University down in Texas, which I think now is Texas Corpus Christi, if I'm not mistaken. Texas Pan Am became Texas Corpus Christi, right? Correct. And, um, but so I hadn't seen Shelton in many years, uh, but this basketball reunion brought a bunch of guys together. Um, you know, it's great stuff. Um, you know, in that whole era of basketball, and maybe 
every guy who ever played in whatever neighborhood, whatever city he ever came from, you know, they may think, you know, that was great back in my day. I just know uh, kind of from 1972-ish, uh, when John Lucas was a player in the city and his teammate Floyd Monroe and um, who, you know, obviously John Lucas went on to play at Maryland and Floyd Monroe went to North Carolina Central, um, you know, and you had, um, yeah, his name's escaping me right now, but it'll come to me in a second. Yeah, yeah Will, that's the first one. So, hey, yeah. tell us though. So here, the competition gets you going, the game, your game gets better. You go to five-star, right. um, end up playing at the, at the college level. Um, why UNCG did, uh, the side path with Dave Odom have anything to do with that? Was there something else? And, uh, and what was that experience like at that point for playing, playing college hoops back still in Carolina? Right. Well, I started off, I went to St. Andrews mm -hmm. uh, in Laurenburg, North Carolina for my first two years. And I went there, um, for a couple of reasons. One, there were only a limited number of schools who showed any interest in me. I was not a highly recruited player. I was um, I was determined to play. I think my determination to for my high school coach to get me into the league with Dave Odom, to, to get Dave Odom to get me into five-star, my determination mm -hmm. to be a player is, is what got me there. It was not my incredible talent. Um, so I went to St. Andrews, had uh, a great experience with my team. We were a good team. We won 15 games as uh, a freshman, won 23 games as a sophomore, um, played with some really outstanding players, played with a guy named Will Peterson, who became a three-time All-American. And uh, he actually played for the Virgin Islands national team and uh, was a great scorer. He single-handedly enabled me to become a point guard because if I could figure out a way to get it across half court and get it into his hands, we had a great chance to score. Uh, so, uh, but I spent two years there and as great as my experience was with the team, um, I didn't have a great experience otherwise. Mm. And I decided really to transfer to UNCG because I knew people there. I knew guys on the team. Right. Uh, the coach had not recruited me. And I just told him, hey, I want to come and I want a chance. And um, I went there and I sat out for a year. And then there was a coaching change. And so a new guy's coming in. He doesn't know anybody and certainly doesn't know me. Um, a guy named Ed Dalma, who okay. had been at Kent State previously and uh, played two years under him. Uh, really enjoyed my experience there. Um, we, were, we were very good my junior year. We were very, very average my senior year as a team. We were very young. I was the only senior. About half of our team were freshmen. Uh, I think we had three juniors. Um, 
and a lot of young guys, but but a great experience, learned a lot and learned a lot from from both experiences. And and I think things that as a coach, uh, you know, a lot of what you learn is about what you want to do as a coach, but you can also learn a lot about what you don't want to do. Okay. What? Before you go into that, let's talk about you were the original transfer portal. So we, 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 we. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, so like I I understand. While I got to say I'm not a big fan of the portal, uh, mm -hmm. there are times where transfer is appropriate for for a variety of reasons. It could be family, it could be financial, it could be uh, academic. There there are reasons why a transfer makes sense and is appropriate and and i certainly acknowledge that uh jt one thing because we did go in and read your bio just to take a look and see how extensive it was and all the stuff in there and because almost everything on our little podcast conversation comes back to florida basketball gotta ask Some you out. about the tryout that is listed with the Florida Suncoast Stingers of the CBA. How did that happen? And take us to Florida just for, because this podcast has to go to Florida every trip. Right. Well, I didn't know that about the podcast, but um, <laughs> the only, the only reason that happened was because uh, there was a guy at North Carolina A&T when I was at UNCG named Joe Binion. Joe Binion is arguably the greatest player, and they've had some great players at North Carolina A&T, but he is certainly arguably among them, uh, if not the best. Uh, drafted by San Antonio, uh, he played uh, for the Florida Suncoast Stingers uh, for Coach Bobby Bowman, who uh, was a longtime coach at Pasco Hernando Community mm -hmm. College. Um, and Joe had a great year as the CBA MVP. And Joe recommended to Coach Bowman that he bring me in for a tryout. And that's the origin of that. And uh, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> All right. So when did you decide, okay, I'm going to go into coaching? Did that come after that tryout or a little bit further yeah, down? Uh, it, yeah, it, it came about when I was uh, I was doing sales. I was working for, I was out of college for two years before I got my first coaching job. And I was involved with a really fine company uh, in my hometown of Durham. Um, I was trying to sell copiers and computers and office equipment um and it, it wasn't my thing mm. uh, in the meantime every free moment that i had revolved around basketball whether i was playing uh whether i was watching whether i was going to games and uh i don't know what the if I had an opportunity, I, I was going by Duke frequently. Um, by virtue of living in Durham and being of a certain age, it I'm very fortunate, I'm blessed to have been placed in a spot where I became friends with some really 
great basketball players. Uh, those guys, uh, and really going back to Gene Banks, uh, Gene wow. Banks came to Duke when I was a junior in high school and playing pickup games uh, enabled me to become friends with Gene. And then after that, Vince Taylor, who I had played against at Five Star, came to Duke. And then, but what really set it off was when a group of guys uh, named Johnny Dawkins, Jay Billis, David Henderson, and Mark Allery came to town. Uh, and then a year later, Tommy Amaker. And those guys all became friends of mine and are still friends today. Uh, I don't know Mark as well, but uh, I, I'm in touch with everybody else that I just mentioned. And um, so I was around a lot and playing pickup in the summer uh, or in the fall before the season. Um, and so I would drop by from time to time in season and watch practice. Mm -hmm. And I would just kind of be the guy sitting in the corner and kind of soaking it up. And um, so kind of in the spring, I was coming up on two years past graduation. And I was really like, this is crazy. When I had, and I guess I should back up, when I went to college as a freshman, I was going to be a high school coach and PE teacher. That was my. Okay, so that was in your brain. That, that was in my okay. brain as yep, a yep. freshman. Because of all my experiences uh, as I was going through school, I decided to change my major and I became a communications major and envisioned myself either being a news or sports reporter. Uh, you know, I was going to be standing here on. Peachtree Peach Street in Atlanta, uh, the hurricane is going to miss Atlanta. It stayed off the coast and, you know, I was going to do that for a living or whatever, or do it in a sports realm. But again, for a variety of reasons, uh, including my father passed away when I was a senior in college and uh, felt like I needed to come home and kind of do some things to help my mom. I, I moved back to Durham. And so now again, fast forward there to the kind of end of year two past graduation. And I'm like, uh, I got I got a coach. That's that's what I want to do. And so I called my college coach, Ed Dalma, who had moved on to Calvin College in Michigan, got some advice from him. Okay. And yep. simultaneous to that, I asked Johnny Dawkins, who Oh, by the way, in the spring of 86 was the national player of the year. It was the Naismith player of the year in the country. Mm -hmm. I said, hey, would you introduce me to coach? And, you know, like I want to get into college coaching and I maybe talk with him, you know, coach being coach Mike right. Krzyzewski. And so on some spring afternoon uh, after they had lost to Louisville in the final four, uh, Johnny Dawkins walks me into Coach K's office and he said, Coach, this is JT. JT, this is Coach. And Coach said, wh whether it's true or not, he said, yeah, I've seen you around the gym playing with the guys. Have a seat. And that 
again, was a kind of a life-changing moment for me. Uh, he immediately offered me a job working basketball camp. Right. Which, which was the first time, well, I'd worked a few camps in college, but as a um, somebody seeking to be a professional coach, that was the first job I was offered, was to work Duke's camp. And he was great to me uh, and has been great to me and remains great to me today. And so that's that's kind of how I started. Got in working. And how many years of Duke basketball camp have you worked? Do you work? Uh, that was a hot topic a week ago when I was there working. Um, it's the only camp that I've... And, and, and I want to talk about camps a little bit too, but yeah. uh, it's the only camp other than our own here at Wesleyan that I continue to to do and have continued to do. And I do it for a variety of reasons. One, my mom is still living in Durham and it gives me an opportunity to spend a week in town and maybe get a couple of dinners with her and that kind of thing. It keeps me connected with coach, uh, although he's no longer at the top of the food chain with the camp uh and he was not around this year but uh, like last year when John Shire had his first camp I was able to spend about 30 minutes with coach Shashevsky and uh catch up and uh maintain that relationship and guys on his staff I'm friends with Chris Carrawell is a great friend of mine and an outstanding coach and going to be very very successful as a head coach at some point Jay Lucas, who I didn't know previously, is the son of John Lucas. And John Lucas, who I mentioned earlier, is one of my mentors um, from when I was in high school and college. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I'm connected to some of those guys and, and like to maintain that connection. And so now I think if my math is right, starting in 86, if that's the right year, uh, we, you know, we're 37, 38 years that I've been doing the camp. At least one week every summer, right? Yeah, and, and some weeks, four. Back right. in the day, they used to have four weeks, and I did them all. Yeah. Um, and so, that's July week, too, where they, everybody goes out and watches fireworks. Not anymore, though. <laughs> right? Absolutely. But those, you know, back in that time when summer recruiting had not evolved into what it has become, uh, and, you know, as a young coach, that's kind of where you learned the trade and it's, and it's how you survive because we weren't making any money. Mm -hmm. And so you needed the money from a camp. I worked, I would work 10 consecutive weeks every mm -hmm. summer for probably nine or 10 years. Um, you know, in those camps, not like today, but those camps were Sunday through Friday. Mm -hmm. and you would get out Friday at lunchtime or a little after and you might get in the car and drive to the next location because Sunday another camp was starting but right. um, you know from yeah. Syracuse to Temple to Rutgers to Maryland to Wake Forest to Georgia Tech uh, the Ernie and Bernie uh, all pro camp uh, Bernard King and Ernie Grunfeld, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a camp that I worked at Fordham University in New York City. Um, 
<laughs> I worked a lot of camps. And Give us your favorite camp, excluding Duke, because obviously if you worked at 37 years, that's the answer, but yeah. excluding Duke. Temple. Really? Temple, yeah. I, I went to Temple. Uh, I didn't know anybody in Philadelphia, had no connection. I, I watched Coach Cheney's teams play on television, and I really liked like the way they played. I liked the way he coached mm -hmm. from what I saw on television. So I think I was in, I think I was in my first year uh, as an assistant and I picked up the phone and called the Temple Basketball Office. For those really old timers, you guys will remember what we call the blue book. Now you just go mm -hmm. online and get whatever you need. But back in the day, there was a blue book that had all the college and university phone numbers coaches, mm -hmm. phone numbers, and everything. So I pulled out the blue book, looked up Temple University, and I called the Temple Basketball Office. I said, do you have a camp? Yes, we do. I said, can I work? And they said, well, we'll get back to you. Yeah, who, who are you? <laughs> exactly. And so fortunately, I was able to get on, and uh, Coach Cheney was amazing, absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, he's, he is a very special person in my life. Okay. Uh, and uh, had it not been uh, for, you know, just the demands of being a head coach, the change in summer recruiting, having a family and the distance from North Carolina to Philadelphia, I probably would continue to work that as well if I'd been able to. Mm -hmm. um, it, tremendous experience learned so very much from him it, all the way up until his death um, continued to learn from him every conversation we had what what is one of those moments JT that, that you've probably got so many but but why is he so special and, and what did you learn or take for your own team for your own life because of you know we see over the years through television through other reports through both love to players and confrontations with others. Um, sure. Everybody has their own judgment from the outside, but tell That's us. From absolutely. Inside. I mean, so many people, when I would come back in the late eighties and early nineties and tell people I was working with coach Cheney, Oh, you know, did you see what he said to John Calipari? Right. Like, yeah. Everybody knows that. Right. Um, he had such love in his heart and was so uh, passionate. Um, you know, it's hard for me to, to come up with one, but I, a few things that I would say. Uh, one, he allowed me to be me. Um, I followed him around as much as I could while I was at camp. Uh, if he was free at dinner. I would sit with him and pepper him with questions. Mm. Um, if like he was around a lot and I will say of all the camps that I've done, the ones that stand out are where the head coaches or the coaches who put their name on the camp who were really around a lot, those camps stand out. Right. Uh, coaches who have their name on the camp and you might see them at the opening and the closing maybe not as much mm -hmm. but 
Coach Cheney was around, you know, he was there for watermelon night. He was there the night we had crabs. He, he, he loved crabs. Uh, and I'll tell you a funny story about seeing him at a clinic in Charlotte, but um, he, he was around and he, he was himself. Uh, he was genuine, but he was an open book. He, I learned, again, I asked him questions all the time. Um, but one of the things that uh, really stands out to me is during the pandemic, we talked once a week for an hour at least, sometimes two hours. And he liked to call, he liked for me to call late. Okay. Call me at 10. Um, and, and so just having those conversations during the pandemic when everything was so different for all of us um, and being able to consistently have that kind of dialogue. Um, but one thing that was guaranteed to be part of every conversation was turnovers. <laughs> he absolutely despised turnovers. And if you went back and looked statistically, his teams were always among the NCAA leaders in fewest turnovers. Um, so, you know, if I called him during the season and he would say, well, how's your team doing? That would be the first. The second question would be, what are your turnovers like? You know, hmm. um, are you turning the ball? Over? Well, coach, more than, more than we would like, more than you would like, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, so he was, you know, that was always a constant. He was uh, really big on discipline uh, and uh, really big on education. I can pull, and I don't know if, I just rearranged some books. Uh, so I'm looking here on my shelf to see if I can put my hands right on his book. But I can tell you on page 280 of his book, he, he had a saying uh, that winning is an attitude. Winning is an attitude. They used to have billboards in Philadelphia with the temple logo, winning is an attitude. He used to have t-shirts printed up. I wish I had saved one of those shirts, just one. I wish I still had. But um, on page 280 in his book, he talks to his one of his teams, uh, I think it's the 1988 team. He's talking to them about college being an investment in yourself. That it's a four-year investment. And what you get out of that investment is up to you. And if you squander it, I can't help you. But we're here to help you. And it's our job to try to make sure that you're getting out of this investment the best that you can. And then he said, you know, but if you want to go back to the same old stuff, and he doesn't use the word stuff, the same old stuff back, you know, the guys who were and he talks about guys who aren't moving forward with their lives and they're standing in quicksand. Um, I read that to my team every fall. There you go. Because 
I, and I tell my team, I can't say this any better. I could try to say something like it and I would mean the same thing, but this guy said it. Mm -hmm. He said it all. And so I read about four or five paragraphs to them every fall about their investment in themselves. Right. Well, talk about talk about being genuine there, right? As a coach, as a person, as a human and caring for others. That's a, a great piece. How did you how did you weave that in plus all the other mentors that you've had into your own coaching? So that first job was coaching a Duke basketball camp. How did you evolve from there to almost 30 years at NC Wesley and um, would take us quickly to uh, the current position, see how those steps went. Yeah, well, so obviously Coach K and Coach Cheney are, are notable mentors that probably anybody who might stumble into this podcast would know. Um, Coach K's top assistant, Pete Gaudet, uh, one of the greatest teachers the game has ever seen, uh, certainly another mentor, and he taught me so much about the game and about how to teach the game and just really about how to teach. Um, so it, it, those three guys, you know, there's some part of me every day that thinks of a, oh yeah, Coach K said this or Coach Cheney said that or Coach Gaudet taught me to say this or taught me that like, I still use, um, when I talk about pivoting to make a pass, I still refer back to a Pete Gaudet thing that's 40 years old. I, I was um, going to say it's surprising, but it's, it's not surprising how often Pete Gaudet's name comes up in the coaching ranks, the, right. the influence, the, the how to pivot to pass, whatever little detail it is, how to teach something, it goes right. back to him. He really did have that kind of influence across all ranks in the, Absolutely. In the basketball. Yeah. Um, my, my college coach that I mentioned, Ed Dalma, certainly uh, was influential. Jack Jensen at uh, Guilford College, where I was an assistant for seven years. Mm -hmm. Jensen, I believe, is in seven different halls of fame. Um, tremendous coach. Uh, again, talking about, you know, doing it off the beaten path. You know, there was a time uh, where Guilford College was like Henry Bibby, who was a great NBA player and uh, maybe not a great, who was a very good NBA player and played at UCLA in their heyday. One of his final schools was Guilford College. Mm -hmm. They were an NAI power and produced NBA players like World Be Free and ML Carr, Bob Kaufman, who I believe was the number three pick in the draft. Um, you know, they were really, really good. Mm. And uh, so learned so much from Coach Jensen, who uh, he was just enough older than me that in many ways, I looked at him as a father figure. Uh, because I had lost my father in college and I spent seven years with Coach Jensen. Um, he was the best man at my wedding. Um, and, uh, but he was still, we were close enough that as colleagues, you know, I looked at him as a friend and um, a really special relationship with him. But tremendous coach, learned so many things from him. Uh, about you know how to coach 
how to coach a superstar guy. How do you coach a guy like World Be Free, who in college was, I mean, he was clearly, he was the MVP of the national tournament as a freshman. Right. Uh, you know, he's a, he's another level player. Mm -hmm. uh, he went pro out of Guilford after his junior year. Um, so another great mentor for me. Um, one that I did, I, I had really good coaching in high school. Johnny Avery was my coach at Jordan High School. Really taught us how to play the game of basketball. I really, from a fundamental standpoint, uh, excellent, excellent basketball coach. Um, and then I had a summer league coach. This predates the AAU days. Um, you know, we didn't we didn't travel all over the place, but we had summer leagues. And I had a guy named Herman Pascal at the YMCA, who was an outstanding. All right, JT, with that Herman Pascal, you have now dropped more names, said more names than any guest ever on Off the Beaten Path. So I, was, I was keeping the tally over here. And as well, we say that, we want to hear as many names as possible. And you have just, uh, you haven't even it. gotten that to NC Wesleyan yet. And we've got the names, the name counter. You are the victor. Well done. Herman well, Pascal, well, we'll have to remember that one. Please, please do. Because he, he is noteworthy because, you know, he went above and beyond. Um, you know, he took me to Duke and Carolina games when he had the opportunity mm -hmm. and would talk to me about not just, oh, did you see that dunk or, hey, did you have a good time at the game? But he would talk to me about what was going on and what did I see and um, instrumental in my development. Get, and, get you thinking uh, the game, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, at any rate, uh, all of those guys, uh, and, and some of the others that I've talked about uh, already have have certainly influenced me, but I would say those are really my major mentors. And um, there's some part of all of them who influence what we do today. And um, you know, I'm I'm very very fortunate. There you go. And aren't we all right? We, we hope to have mentors along the way that bring us bring us along. Um, you hinted at it with the Guilford references in seven years as, as an assistant there. Was that your first college job there? Um, and did that lead to head coaching or what were the what were the quick steps to get to NC Wesleyan? Well, uh, they weren't quick steps, but uh, my first head coaching job was ironically back at St. Andrews, where I had left after a sophomore year as a player and under a new coach there, Mark Simons, another mentor of mine, he had come from Saginaw Valley State in Michigan. And I immediately learned, like I thought I was a, I thought I was a savvy player. I thought I knew the game on some level. I thought, uh, you know, I had a decent basketball IQ. And what I quickly learned was how much I didn't know. And, you know, that. Well, and, and at least you can admit it, right? Too many of us don't realize that. We think we know it or we know just enough to think we know it, right? right. But we don't. Right. Well, he, you know, we went to a, a, my first Nike coaches clinic um, recently, Ed Janka, the longtime uh, director of all the Nike coaches clinics recently passed away. Um, 
so prayers to his family. But uh, it, my first Nike coaches clinic uh, in Raleigh, and I saw uh, Dick Versace, who mm. was a, at that time had just taken a job, I think, as an assistant with the Pistons, but had been at Bradley and some other places. Uh, Jim Beheim uh, from Syracuse was on that slate of coaches. And um, I immediately knew, holy cow, like, you know, I I may know something, uh, but boy, there's so much that I don't know. And understanding the game from different perspectives. And, um, and then again, uh, about how to teach it. That is to me, so uh, such a major thing, like coaches are teachers and uh, whatever knowledge you have, you've got to be able to explain it, perhaps demonstrate it, correct it. Um, you know, you've got to be able to get somebody else to perform it. Right. And so whether that's how to shoot a jump shot or whether it's how to run the triangle offense, you've got to be able to get someone else to do so teaching is, is vital. And so learning that. Uh, so anyway, I started at St. Andrews under Mark Simons. Um, and then uh, at the end of that year through, because of that first Nike clinic, I went up and introduced myself to Jim Beheim and asked him about working camp. He said, drop me a note, or he actually said, drop my assistant a note, which I did. And I went up and worked their camp. And through that camp, I got connected and I took a job at St. Lawrence University, which is two hours north of Syracuse. I'd never been to upstate New York. My only understanding of New York was New York City. I had no idea about anything north of that. And so I went to St. Lawrence which was a tremendous experience. Um, it introduced me to New York City recruiting, which became important to me for, for a long okay. time. Met many outstanding coaches uh, through that whole process. Uh, had a really good year there. We won our league, um, the ICAC at that time. And at the end of that year, my head coach, um, who was an outstanding basketball and lacrosse guy. He took the head lacrosse job at Salisbury State. His name is Jim Berkman. If you look him up, he's won multiple national championships in lacrosse at Salisbury State. But he was the head coach also for basketball at St. Lawrence. Correct. So it left me without a head coach. And I only had two years of experience. Not like I was very marketable as the potential head coach uh, for them. Uh, and that's when I came back to North Carolina. I interviewed with Coach Jensen at Guilford. Yep. And in that interview, he said, well, you know, really like you, but I think I'm going to offer one of my former players. He knows my system. I, you know, we know each other, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. So I go back to St. Lawrence. The new coach had come in and he brought an assistant with him, but he said, hey, I'll let you coach the JV team and kind of hang on. I said, oh, it's, it's all I got. And mm -hmm. I arranged that I, I could survive. I had a way to live. And the Wednesday before Labor Day, Coach Jensen called me 
And he said, my former player turned the job down. Do you want it? I said, I'll be there next Tuesday. And I went in and talked to the head coach. I packed my stuff and I moved to Greensboro. And it's out. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. That's it. So then I was seven years there and, and ultimately became the head coach here at North Carolina Wesleyan. All right. So you went from the seven-year assistant to head coach at NC Wesleyan. All right. So how, how many years total have you have you been? At Wesleyan now, 28. 28. So I, I think that 37 total as a college coach and 28 here at Wesleyan. Man, that's Man awesome. exactly. Hey, that's a long time at one place, right? Today's world fast paced from coaching to jobs to people coming and going to transfer portals like we were talking about how and why are you still there what is the what's the pull the draw and and why are you that good at your job um how does all of that fit together jt yeah i i don't know if i'm that good i maybe have got some people fooled but um i think uh, how and why maybe two things. Uh, one, I knew, although getting into coaching, it's a roll of the dice sometimes. I knew that I was not a person who wanted to move every four to five years. That was not the lifestyle that I hoped to have. Um, timing is really important mm. in any potential move. And so sometimes there might be a potential move available, but because of where you are with your family, uh, where your wife is with her career, if she has a career uh, and mine does and, and has throughout all of this, it might not be the time to move. And it could be location, um, but I know there were, my president, uh, the president who was here when I was hired, asked me, you know, how I saw my career evolving. And this was in my first or second year here. And I said, I can see this going three ways. I said, one, I could leave Wesley and go become a division one assistant for someone and move from there. Two, I could move to what in some way, shape, or form would be a better head coaching position, either at Division Two or Division Three, somehow better opportunity. Or, and I, and I said this almost verbatim to the president, I said, I will never be Dean Smith or Mike Krzyzewski, but... I could see myself being in terms of longevity like those guys okay. here at North Carolina Wesleyan. And so you are. <laughs> well, in terms of longevity only. Uh, hey, you don't sell yourself short. Like you talk about, uh, um, I've got people fooled. You don't fool people with 400 wins uh, under your belt. So. Right. Um, I, I've got a good question. I know uh, I'm, I'm entering my 15th year at the same place as a head coach. And I know 
a lot of times the longer you're somewhere, especially the smaller levels, you know, when you mentioned Coach K and Dean Smith, a lot of times they might deal with the athletic department only, whereas in a smaller setting, you, you have to deal with everything. Mm -hmm. uh, they, there's a, a buddy of mine one time said that every five years you stay at a place, you add two people who think you hung the moon and you add two people who are hoping you get fired tomorrow. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I haven't really seen that in my time, but I'm just curious. Did, did, have you outlasted some things that you thought, man, I don't know if I'll outlast that one, you know, a, a change at the school or maybe somebody, you know, I don't, I know you don't want to throw somebody under the bus, but you know what I mean? Yeah. What, what's funny is um, that you say that outlast. Uh, when I was at Guilford, um, there was an administrator that coach Jensen was really struggling with. And he said to me, he was a, he was a tough Jersey guy. And I, I won't really attempt to imitate Coach Jensen. But he said, John, <laughs> I've outlasted administrators before him. And I'll outlast him too. And he did. Um, in, in my case, um, number one, let me say, I don't know that anybody including my family thinks that I hung the moon. Maybe my mom, she may think I hung the moon. I don't know that there's anybody here who thinks that. Um, and I hope I haven't made any enemies. Um, I hope that when, if there's ever been any disagreement over anything that people believe that I am trying to be honest and see you know, what's best for the college, the athletic department, the basketball program in particular, or a young man, uh, whatever thing might be. I, um, so I don't know that uh, if, if I add two of each every five years, uh, they're all pretty quiet. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm on both sides of it, right? Yes. <laughs> hey, so longevity, quite impressive. 400 wins. We reference it uh, this year. Only one loss in the in the conference and a trip to the NCAA tournament. How did that all come together? Tell us about this year's team and results, successes, and ultimately making it to the the D3 tournament which is a lot people make a big deal about the field of 64 68 but the D3 tournament's a lot harder to get into and uh, earn a spot in so tell us about that yeah it, it is hard and uh, this team's really special uh, and I, I think it's kind of a culmination of a lot of things but the number one thing that I would say is that they brought it every day. Uh, we talk a lot with our team about consistency. Um, and we talk about treating every game like a championship game. And our objective in that is, I guess, twofold. Number one, if you treat every game, whether it's the first game of the season, the first conference game of the season, uh, middle of the pack, game in February, whatever, like your odds are, you, you give yourself a good chance to be successful if you treat it the same way you would treat a championship game, right? Like you're going to come at a 
a championship level. Um, beyond that, we, we talked to our team about doing everything at a championship level, walk like a champion, talk like a champion, study like a champion. Uh, you know, if you're going to do something, if you have a work study job, treat that like a champion. Um, so we want to be at that level all the time. Well, the other thing that I think it helps you do is when you get to quote unquote, a real championship game, one that is for a trophy, one that is to cut down the nets. We've been there before. Right. Yeah, 25 times already. Time. Mm -hmm. like, this is, we don't have any special anxiety or any special, we have to do this today because this is the champ. We've already played the championship game 25 times. Um, and I think this year's team did an incredible job of embracing that. Um, I think that really day in and day out, and it does, you know, every team faces adversity, every team, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, practice competition, whether it's injury, whether it's, um, you know, whatever, you, you face adversity, but this team really uh, weathered everything that came our way. Uh, we had very good internal leadership and um, and we had talent. And, you know, I told people before the season that, you know, we had size, length, athleticism and some basketball skills. Uh, mm -hmm. The question for us will be, uh, you know, do we play together? Do we play hard? Do we play unselfishly? and uh, buy into the team. And if we do that, we're gonna be pretty good. And we, we were pretty good. All right, doing it as long as you've done it there, uh, we mentioned a little bit of the cell phone change, but one of the things that, that I've seen just in my time is uh, the amount of, uh, it goes both ways, the amount of coverage that lower levels get now, uh, Division II, NAI, Division Three, JUCO, uh, you know, they get a lot more coverage due to the internet, YouTube, different, you know, venues that you can stream it live. Uh, but also uh, the other, you know, ESPN plus. So now every division one game is ESPN plus. Right. Have you been able to use that to help you hurt you in between? What, what, what do you kind of think on that? Yeah. You know, I'm probably not uh, tech savvy enough to, say we've done a great job. Uh, we certainly, all of our games are streamed. Uh, so we are visible in that way. We try to play some division one games. We did not play one this past season, but you know, we'll play one or two every year if we can. Um, during the pandemic shortened season, the, uh, 2021 season, we played five division one games uh, because we struggled to get opponents and we were playing. And I should give kudos to our athletic department and to our college administration. They really supported us. They backed us. They uh, made it possible through testing and everything else um, that we were able to play. And there were a number of schools uh, in division three in this part of the country that didn't play or didn't play till after the new year. Um, and, and we were playing and we were able to play five division one games. 
and got a lot of ESPN and ESPN plus exposure that way. Um, so, you know, we try, uh, I try and lean on some younger, maybe social media savvy folks here to maybe give us some guidance, but we, we still can get better, I'm sure, uh, in those areas. But better, better coverage now than it, that it used to be when people didn't really know um, as much about Division Three, let alone an NC Wesleyan and uh, the the successes that you've had along the way. Looking at your roster, North Carolina, North Carolina, North Carolina, maybe a Florida. You mentioned New York recruiting before, but this is a true in-state program, right? Based on your time there, where you're from and the players on the roster. Uh, why is that important or not? Would you, do you want to get some people in from California? Well, it, you know what? We want to get good players who are good people who fit what we do. You know, we tell guys all the time when they're here on visits, you know, this is not for everybody. You, you got to want to do it the way that we do it um you want to buy into and believe in um and own what our program is about and if that's not for you that's okay doesn't make you a bad guy or anything but maybe right. this is the place for you so we'll take the guys from anywhere it's interesting probably my first i will say 10 years we had guys from everywhere we there was one year almost half our team was from Florida. We probably had we probably had six out of fourteen guys were from Florida that year. Um, we've had guys from Georgia. We've had guys from South Carolina. We've had guys from New York City. We've had guys from D.C., Maryland, Massachusetts, and Michigan. Um, over the years, I think it's been a combination of um, time constraints, uh, in some cases, budget. It's a lot easier to go see a kid play in Charlotte, North Carolina, than it is in Tampa, Florida. Uh, and um, I think we've, I think we've developed a reputation uh, in the state. I think there is a level of appreciation for what we do and how we do it. And so if we go into a home or a high school or visit with an AAU team or coach, um, that they acknowledge that we've been able to do some things here to, to help some guys and, um, you know, and our guys who have graduated, who have stayed in the area, uh, whether immediately locally or statewide, um, you know, they can pass that on to, to other people that they talk to. So um, it's just kind of trended that way. That has not been intentional, um, but it's worked out that way. Um, so. And it works out quite well. That's it, the even better part. Exactly. It, it has. Yeah. You know, we, we had a really outstanding player uh, who graduated in the class of 2022 uh, named Damon McDowell, who came from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, so it's not real far away, uh, but he is out of state. Um, he's now playing professionally. Uh, we've got a kid from Florida on our current roster, and we've got a, a new freshman coming in. Um, 
but you know, again, we'll we'll look at a kid from anywhere. Um, hey, JT, does that North Carolina high school basketball have a shot clock yet? Does not. Does not. Georgia got it this past year, and uh, we've started using it on uh, our podcast also. So we okay. turn on the shot clock as we go into the lightning round at the end here, and uh, some some rapid fire questions if we can make them work, and. Uh, Let's see what you got. As Corey always says, the, the food will be a part of it, although you started us off with that. Um, quick answers are appreciated, but not required. If you got a okay. story to go with it, tell it. Um, right. So Corey, you want to kick off the lightning here with JT? Yeah, I'll stay with basketball before I go to my favorite uh, food, but uh, give us the best and worst gym you've coached in. Wow. Oh, man. Uh, atmosphere the physical appearance any and all of that right correct correct yeah um okay can i ask this back uh when i when you say coached in are you talking about game or practice or both you you take it where you want to all right um <laughs> i'm i'm gonna say best gym i've coached in uh in a game I'm going to say the Greensboro Coliseum only because of its history. Uh, you know, we didn't, we as an opponent didn't draw enough fans for the atmosphere to be electric uh, right. necessarily, but uh, just because of the quality of the facility itself and the history of the yeah. history of the facility, it, uh, I'll say the Greensboro Coliseum, but to practice in, the palestra in Philadelphia. And for anybody, I, I, I won't go into a 30-minute description of the palestra, but if you are unfamiliar with it uh, out there, check it out. Um, anybody and everybody from Philadelphia, from Wilt Chamberlain to Kobe Bryant, has played in the palestra. They've played Final Fours in the palestra. It's hosted more NCAA tournament games than any other building. The big five in Philadelphia still play games in the palestra. It's on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. So you know, that's that building is in the same class, I would say, with Allen Fieldhouse at Kansas and Cameron Indoor Stadium at Duke. But the palestra, perhaps even more unique. How about that? That's one I have not been to. It's on my list, and, and more than one person will list the palestra as the place you need to go. Corey, have you ever been there? No, no. I, I, now I really want to go. Exactly. Through, through Coach Cheney and in turn through Fran Dunphy, and now Steve Donahue is the coach at Penn. Through those gentlemen, we've been able to practice there every year, except this past season, we were in Philadelphia in December. And it was the first time we'd ever gone to Philly and not practiced in the palestra. And that was because they had just refinished the floor mm. and we weren't able to get on, but we went and toured it and took pictures and uh, it's a special place. All right. Now, now the worst, because being in off the beaten path, these are the ones that uh, most of our listeners live for because uh, you know, there's some bad gyms out there that host college games still. <laughs> or there are, and I, I hate to, golly. <laughs> 
Hey, you're all right. We've thrown some folks under the bus before. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to. Um, <laughs> Just don't do a conference bullet, thing. Bulletin right? board material. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and because, you know, <laughs> you never know. I might I might not be at Wesleyan forever. I might need, I don't know if I'm going to go worst. Um, I, I would just say there are some places where guys are doing amazing jobs coaching and recruiting teams and coaching teams and winning games. And for those guys who coach at the Dukes and Temples and so on and so forth, they have no idea and and mm. guys figure out ways to make it work mm -hmm. Cyril, i'll insert it i don't think i've ever told this one worst place i'm gonna give you one in douglas county uh, douglas georgia coffee county they have a christian school called citizens christian and you the benches are on one side and the scores tables on the opposite side so when you go to sub in they have a light switch no on this in between the uh benches and you click it to let the scores table know <laughs> that you want to stop that might be my all-time favorite on a worst gym or maybe that's a great gym i don't know but are there bleachers behind either side or are they like on a balcony or they're kind of on a balcony so they're like kind of above you know a little bit so mm -hmm. that's what I'm all when I saw that I was like hold on why are they flipping a white what that's oh. a light switch oh okay I got it <laughs> All right, go, go ahead, sir, with your next I play. love it. I love it. Hey, JT, so you're big NABC. You've been involved with the Coaches Association for a while and rules committee included. What is a rules change at college basketball level that you think needs to be implemented in today's age? What do we need at college basketball to make the game better? Well, one thing that I would say is let's not tinker with it too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we have um, implemented a number of changes, uh, all for the better, uh, generally speaking. And um, one of the changes that the rules committee made after I was on it was that they would only do a rule change every other year. And so that would allow time for that rule to kind of be evaluated and um, that we weren't constantly making a rule change every year. Uh, I think that's good. I think some consistency to the game. Um, but again, I'm going to kind of beg out a little bit. I, what I'm going to say is I a rule that I don't want to see come that is being talked about is uh, in the final minute of the game uh advancing the ball on a timeout mm. uh, like the nba does and like our women's game does that right um and it is being discussed uh as a potential rule change for the men and, and i'm not in favor of that give us a quick why reason why well the number one reason why is there's no other rule in the game like that to me you you advance the ball by passing or dribbling. You, I agree. Don't, you don't get to advance the ball because you call a timeout or commit a foul. So we're going to advance the ball and, um, or get a rebound. I get a rebound, call a timeout so I can move the ball to where I want it. Mm -hmm. um, 
penalizes the defense. Right. Uh, so I, I just think you, the ball's where it is and you play it from where it is. I understand that the number one, re as I understand it, the number one reason for the rule is to give you more end of game uh, excitement, more opportunities. In those close ones, right. Right. I don't know that our game needs an injection of mm -hmm. excitement. That's a fan rule, not a coaching rule. I, right. I, I think the game is pretty that. exciting as it is. Yeah. And uh, if we were solely selling entertainment, maybe. Um, but I, I think the game is pretty good without that particular yeah. rule. Not four quarters on the men's side? or a I'm not for four quarters either, although it, it's okay if it comes. And I think it will come. I think it is coming quickly. Um, but I'm not necessarily in favor of it. Um, I have very good friends who are in favor of it. Uh, and one of the arguments you will hear is that men's basketball is the only place the game is played that's not in quarters. In the world. Right. And, and my response is, so? Correct. I <laughs> like, agree with Why is that a reason to go to quarters? Now, uh, starting the foul count over and less bonus opportunities, less game stoppages because of that, maybe pick up the, uh, okay, uh, I guess maybe, but um, I would, I would, by the way, want to go to four quarters as opposed to just a random reset of the fouls in the middle of the half. Okay. Which I've heard discussed as well. You know, like it, the first dead ball after the 10 minute mark, it would just reset. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me either. But, uh, you know, again, I think our game is our game. We, we aren't the NBA. Correct. And uh, just because they are four quarters and women went four quarters and international, which used to be in halves also, but they went four quarters. Okay. Well, that doesn't mean to be crazy is the, is the nine different three point lines from high school through women's college, through WNBA, through men's right. college, through NBA, that, that one is going to probably stay where it is for a little bit, but uh, more lines on the court gets a little confusing. I got to say. Right. Well, fortunately, uh, you know, the men and the women in college are at least unified on that. So, um, you know, and we don't have to worry about an NBA line on our floor. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's, let, let's go to what really matters here. Give us the, it's a twofold question. Number one, best place to eat in Greensboro. Uh, and then uh, give us the best uh, uh, local spot that you might hit for lunch. You know, if somebody was coming into town, who are you taking them? And then you kind of set us up for this one. You say you're hunting the best barbecue in the world. Have you found it? <laughs> All right, so go ahead with those. Yeah, well, I'll start with the last one. Uh, living in Rocky Mount here in Eastern North Carolina, uh, I would, 
like there's a huge debate in this state over Eastern North Carolina barbecue and Western North Carolina barbecue. Mm. And if I didn't say Eastern North Carolina barbecue, I might not be able to go home tonight. So <laughs> definitely Eastern North Carolina barbecue is the best. Mm. But let me also say, I'm not sure I've ever had bad barbecue. Uh, Memphis, Kansas City, Dallas, mm. uh, anywhere here in North Carolina, yeah, barbecue is pretty good. So yeah. what's on your what's on your barbecue plate? Who uh, I like pulled pork. I like pulled beef. And by the way, so getting to where would I take them here in town if I had a guest come in? Uh, there's a couple of places, but um, the Prime Smokehouse pulled beef is my go-to. Uh, I frequently take coaches who have visited. I, I've taken. Um, you got on me about. Uh, name dropping earlier, but I've taken a number of coaches to the Prime Smokehouse. Keep them coming. Well, let me. Uh, well, I will say this. Uh, recently, in, in the last, within since the pandemic, since the pandemic, Pete Gillen, Mitch Bonaguro, Eddie Jordan, and Larry Brown Ooh. have all loved the prime smokehouse and whether it's ribs or pulled pork or pulled beef which is my go-to there the pulled beef uh, all outstanding now the other place that i might go for lunch on a friday would be the restaurant that is attached to smith's red and white grocery store of course you go on friday <laughs> The catfish. Ooh, I like it. Yes. But they've got a great buffet, all good soul food, good southern. Uh it's really good. Uh, but but catfish on Fridays. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. Great spots. Um, we're gonna have to head to Rocky Mountain, schedule some games up there, Corey. Yeah, get, yeah, get yeah, into yeah. town. I like some it. barbecue and some catfish on Friday before the Saturday game. I like it. I like well, it. Good. And you asked about Greensboro and I did, I went to college in Greensboro. I spent a lot of years in Greensboro mm. at Guilford college as well. So mm. I will throw in one of my all time favorites is the only remaining, there used to be a chain in North Carolina called Daryl's. And I, it's the only remaining Daryl's is in Greensboro and beef ribs at Daryl's. Definitely love thumbs up. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, my last question, then I'll let Searle take over the lightning round. Is uh, I ask this one pretty frequently now. Is uh, what's the one time where you know you kind of got humbled in this business? Whether it was getting let go from a place, uh, staff getting let go, uh, somebody not recognizing you, somebody thinking you were somebody else. Uh, what would, what would be that that moment where you were like, uh, I hadn't quite made it, I guess. I thought I did. Yeah, I'll give you two. Um, the first one is I, I was let go from my first job. So I was a college coach for about nine months and was let go. And, uh, well, that was pretty humbling. And, and it, it left me in scramble mode. Uh, so that was a quick introduction to this business. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other time, um, 
so you made me think of this uh, when you were talking about, uh, you know, how much more known some of the small college stuff is now that it's, you know, on social media, there's more places, more outlets where you can see it. And so now you're more, well, I was in the grocery store that's like five minutes from my house. It's between campus and my house. Uh, so just 10 minutes from campus, five minutes from my house. And I was wearing a Wesleyan basketball t-shirt. And I'm standing in line at the grocery store and the woman in front of me happened to turn around and she saw my shirt and she said, NC Wesleyan, I didn't know they had a basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty humbling. You know, right. yeah, I don't think I'm the big guy. I, you know, I'm coach of the local college team. Lady in grocery store doesn't even know we exist. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all too real, isn't it? Um, and and reminds us of our place in the universe. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, speaking of places in universe, John Thompson, you got any uh, final four um, missed phone calls or the wrong John Thompsons at the headquarter hotels? Did you uh, did you recruit Patrick Ewing? Is that how it worked? Yeah. Uh, well. You you have the insight to ask a couple of questions like that. Um, I have uh, been thought to be the other John Thompson when they didn't know what room. Um, you know, I've been invited to be, there used to be a show on ESPN uh, on Sunday mornings, and I'm trying to think of what the name of it was. Sports, sports Reporters? Was it yeah, maybe it was the Sports Reporters that... Uh, but I, I was invited, I received an invitation uh, to appear live on the Sunday sports reporters during the Final Four. Uh, and I was to meet the limo outside the hotel uh, at whatever the appointed hour was to go to the studio so I could you know, be zoomed into their telecast or whatever. And uh, I thought about taking the limo <laughs> but then I decided, you know what, I probably should take this back down and say, hey, there's another John Thompson that I think was supposed to be the uh, intended recipient of this fax that uh, was under my door. Um, so there have been a few of those. Um, one year in New York, I think what you were alluding to when you asked if I had coached Patrick Ewing um, in 1994. I think was the year the final four was at the Meadowlands, mm -hmm. uh, Jersey, and the final the the 90, NHC yeah, convention was in right. New York City. Mm -hmm. And uh, Greg Sagroso, who you mentioned earlier, uh, former high school coach, outstanding coach in the area uh, there in Atlanta, and a good friend of ours, and I were walking around, and uh, I knew. Uh, Eddie uh, Ernie Grunfeld, who I mentioned earlier, I worked his camp as a younger guy, and uh, he was the general manager of the Knicks. And I said, "Let's just drop in and see. By any chance is he around? You know, I have no idea." So we went up to where the Knicks offices are in Madison Square Garden, and. As you might expect, we got kind of the stiff arm from the secretarial staff. And uh, no, Mr. Grunfeld is not here and we don't know who you are. And 
you just need to take the elevator back downstairs, essentially. And I said, okay, can I leave him a message? Sure. So I, I think it was a little notepad. I put my name and where I was staying and said, if you could just let Mr. Grunfeld know that John Thompson stopped by. And so Greg and I are back out standing at the elevator. And this woman comes rushing back out into the hallway. Mr. Thompson, Mr. Thompson, wait, 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 wait. Mr. Grunfeld uh, is coming back. He wants to see you. Did you coach Patrick Ewing? <laughs> uh, sorry, no, different John Thompson. So uh, that was, those things have happened on an occasion or two. Um, so I even, I actually, they uh, checked me into his room once, uh, not long ago. Uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, um, checked me into his room and he was actually in the room. <laughs> so my card key was not working and uh, they sent somebody up and then they realized he was inside and he came to the door. We had met on a few occasions, so we did have an acquaintanceship. Uh, I said, coach, Sorry, obviously they've given me the wrong room. We'll we'll go downstairs and take care of it. So, <laughs> gotta love how the the paths cross with the yeah. with the names. Ernie Grunfeld, yeah, <laughs> come on in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When they realized uh, that I was not Patrick Ewing's coach, and they again said, "Wait, just take the elevator downstairs." Yeah, he's he's actually not on his way back in. <laughs> right. <laughs> how about that? Hey. JT, this has been awesome. I think we could go on forever and have three more episodes here, but let's kind of wrap things up. And before we do, though, anything that you want to share, a story we missed, a person to thank, uh, a, a team that you that you want to play, anything along those lines, uh, drop your final thoughts for us, please. Well, I would just say, first of all, thank you guys for doing this podcast. I, I think it's conceptually a, a great thing. And I want to say thanks in particular for having me on. Uh, much appreciated. Um, hopefully it won't put anybody to sleep, but uh, I do appreciate the opportunity. And, it, you know, I would just say uh, if you're an aspiring coach, um, keep working, you know, keep working. Um, you know, people are going to tell you to network. Um, I prefer to say build relationships. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to shake hands with people and exchange business cards or change numbers in a phone or whatever, but you, know, you got to build relationships with people and, uh, and with really good people. And um, it's the greatest game in the world. And uh, keep loving the game, keep teaching the game and, and love your players. Um, so that's it. Love your players. There you go. Keep working, keep grinding and enjoy those relationships. And, and that's why we're all here. No Absolutely. doubt. Well, we appreciate everybody listening, watching, following along. Um, stay in touch also on Twitter with us at the off beaten path with a little underscore. And Corey, I think that's about it. This has been great to catch up with JT and hear all about D3 and your long long path uh john thompson at nc wesleyan so 
Thanks, man. You're the best. This is great. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. For everybody out there, we appreciate it. Um, And you know, Off the Beaten Path is a show for those who want to coach, those who used to coach, those who are coaches. Hey, those who follow coaches, even those who hire and fire coaches. And we didn't even talk about the athletic director piece, JT, but that'll be for another day.